Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Financial Confessions. It's me, Chelsea Fagan, your host, founder and CEO of The Financial Diet, and woman who loves to talk about money. And when you talk about women and money as much as we do on this channel, it is pretty inevitable that you're going to run into the subject of MLMs, which is something that we've covered quite a bit on this channel, but is always something worth diving back into given their continued relevance and influence and in many cases, disastrous results for an increasing number of women. And of course, as we saw last year with the crypto meltdown, pyramid schemes are definitely not something that are limited to women in scope, but they are definitely something that will often target and prey on women. And it's not just a financial preying, it's also a social one. MLMs don't just target women who are in financially precarious positions and have limited options for employment, although they do. They also entangle themselves in women's social lives and self-perception in such a way that even though MLMs are a losing proposition for the majority of people who engage in them, it is incredibly difficult to disentangle yourself. But although most women who participate in an MLM are going to, in the best case, break even, but more often than not lose money in the long term, there are a few winners, and it is those winners who keep people locked into the idea that they too could one day succeed. My guest today is someone who was one of those winners. She made millions of dollars from her time in the MLM world, and now she has an upcoming book all on the subject subject, both in terms of the behind-the-scenes reality of the industry, but also what it means to leave it, and the disastrous impacts that being a part of one of these schemes can have on the women who belong to them. I'm very grateful to my guest today for coming and being as honest as she is about the topic. I did some research on her before we spoke today, and I am truly bowled over by how raw and honest she's been about all of these experiences, both inside and out of the MLM, and I'm very grateful to be talking with her today so candidly. My guest today is writer, mom, recovery advocate, and upcoming author out May 30th of the book Hey Hun, all about her time in MLMs, Emily Lynn Paulson. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And thanks to Saxoff Fifth for supporting TFC. From investment pieces to vacation essentials, Saxoff Fifth is where fashion takes off. Shop now at SaxOffFifth.com or go to a SaxOffFifth store near you for up to 70% off spring styles. Um, so obviously I teed that up a bit, but just to give people the quick recap, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your role in an MLM and getting out of it? Yeah, so this is probably going to be a long story, but I'll try and make my little elevator pitch. So I got involved in an MLM uh a dozen years ago. Um, I had heard about them. I kind of knew about them. I was a little cringy about them, the home party thing, but I'll have to say I was pretty ignorant about what they entailed and what they were all about. So I had a friend who was involved. She invited me out for some wine and after talking to her and kind of getting confirmation that, oh, she's my friend. I trust her. She's successful. I kind of had that little tug of hope that, hey, maybe this could work for me too. And it was also a time in my life when I was done having kids. I just had my last baby and going back to the workforce wasn't really in the cards for me because of childcare and all the things. And this seemed like something that I could maybe do. And luckily for me, I, again, kind of ran with that ignorance of not knowing what I was doing, not knowing much about the industry, told some friends about it, and I became successful quite quickly. And it took me a few years to realize that I was successful, yet everyone I was bringing in wasn't. They weren't having the same success 
I always thought I was doing what I was told. And so I was successful and that was why, but they were also doing the things that I was telling them to do and they were not as successful. So I started seeing the numbers game really not working out for people. The fact that I was gaining money because they were losing money. And it took me a while to really understand that a lot of the things I was told from the beginning were not based on actual data. Um, a lot of it was, uh, you know, platitudinous buzzwords and word salad and all of these things to kind of keep me roped into this community um, that was really what I now believe is a commercial cult. So through that experience, through, um, you know, my own actual recovery journey, um, I got sober while I was in an MLM. And through COVID and the experience I had watching just the blatant predatory tactics, a lot of PPP loan fraud, lots of things came up during the pandemic that I just couldn't ignore anymore. I could not be associated with anymore. Uh, I ended up quitting. And I realized that there were a lot of things that I didn't know that I wish I had known getting in that I realized other people should know. And that's why I decided to write a book about it. And you, as I mentioned in the intro, have um, you've been really open about some of the, I mean, I hate to say it, but more unsavory aspects of your time. Like you had written an article that I read about, um, so you had been diagnosed with cancer. Um, I want to say cervical cancer. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and you initially kind of leveraged that cancer diagnosis to uh, essentially fortify your uh, your prospects and, and your revenue in the MLM. And obviously now I think that's something for for which you have a lot of remorse, but I think a lot of people from the outside would have a hard time understanding how someone who, you know, seems as nice and, and savvy and competent as you are could kind of get in the position of rationalizing that to yourself. So could you talk about that experience, but also kind of what got you to the place of viewing your such a such a serious diagnosis as kind of a business opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're inside and you are at these like retention events, you go to a local recruiting event, or even you go to these big conventions that uh, the companies have and all MLMs do them because that's how they keep people excited and keep people interested. The stories told, the people on stage, uh, the people you see in social media posts always start with, a sad story or a low point. Mm. And this is really just, it's infused into the storytelling of MLM because you have to hit on the pain points of people. So whether it's, oh, you, you just had a baby. Okay. Well, I had a baby and didn't know what to do. And so I joined and, you know, that's part of my story too. I saw all of these other moms, stay-at-home moms uh, who had been successful or who had joined and found happiness or whatever. And it was the vulnerability of them joining, the pain points of them joining that enticed me to join. And it's no different in any other circumstance. So when you're in for a few years and you're surrounded by this, these messages of, oh, so-and-so got divorced and this really helped her. So-and-so had $40 in her bank account and this really helped her. And, uh, you know, this happened to this person and this happened to this person, then being served a diagnosis and someone saying to you, you know, this could really help you. Like this could really help you. And you think you're doing something helpful um, that, you know, hey, I'm, I, I'm just, I've been served up this, this really crappy circumstance and I really wanna use this to do something better. 
And so, hey, I'm going to use this to donate money to charity. And that sounds all lovely and great, but at the heart of it, it's really duplicitous because <laughs> you're requiring people to buy into your pyramid scheme instead of just giving you money for this charity. So it's really easy. The cognitive dissonance is just built in when every story in the MLM is told from that place of vulnerability. You're really taught to be vulnerable and use that to your advantage. Well, and you also mentioned in the article I read, and you and you sort of touched on it here, the extent to which the, you know, the presence of charity or a charitable element to a lot of these sort of ultimately very much profit-seeking um, endeavors is a way to sort of launder the process to make it seem a lot more benevolent than it is. Do you feel that that's sort of like, that it's always the case when charity and business are mixed up, that it can basically never be altruistic? Or do you think that it was more localized to your experience with the MLM? I think it definitely seemingly legitimizes it. When you see someone who, even if you're skeptical about the products they're selling, but they're having an event around a certain charity, it does legitimize it, legitimize it. And so you think, okay, well, I'll go to this. It's going to a good cause. Even though I feel a little leery about the business or you know this, this product that they're selling, I think it does legitimize it. I think it's different when say you have a local, you know, pizza shop who's asking, hey, come, come eat pizza tonight and we'll give 20% to the local schools. You know, something like that where the money is being infused into the local economy and the people who are going to buy the pizza are going to benefit from it regardless, right? They're getting the pizza, they're getting the money in their economy. So I think we're used to this idea that roping a charity in might be beneficial. In the MLM, the money, the, the money going to whatever product you buy, whatever event you're signing up for that supposedly goes to charity, the huge majority of the money goes to the upline, the parent organization, the huge corporation, very little goes to the actual rep and even less is gonna to go to the charity. So I think that's the difference in that it's not mutually beneficial for everybody. There's already um, other, there's, there's other benefits that the reps are getting. They're getting the money, they're getting the ranks, they're getting uh, a signal boost in the company because it probably leads to some promotion. They probably get on some leaderboards. So there's always an ulterior motive built in. And you, uh, you know, you mentioned obviously um, that you got sober while you were in an MLM and you've spoken at length about the ways in which uh, MLMs sort of both prey upon and also engender addiction or, you know, unhealthy behavior with, uh, it sounds like alcohol specifically. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I don't think this is, this is any different than, uh, say, happy hours with coworkers after work. Uh, but the problem with MLM is that a lot of the quote unquote business decisions, and I use air quotes because it's not a business, you know, you're an independent consultant for a huge corporation, you don't have a small business. But when you meet clients or potential recruits or potential customers over wine, you know, you're making financial decisions while you're drinking, which of course you're taking away some of your uh, power, you're giving away some of your control there. But a lot of the activities, a lot of the retention events, a lot of the business uh, events, uh, conventions, uh, there's a lot of alcohol around. I know that was 
it, it wasn't singular to my organization, but um, it was very prevalent in mine. And so for someone who maybe is already using alcohol as a way to cope, as a way for a, you know, social lubrication, um, adding that in to your now, again, quote unquote job, um, is going to be problematic. And so for me, it definitely escalated uh, an issue that was already there. You know, I was already escaping with wine, which I think is, can be very common again with this population of stay at home moms. And, um, it, yeah, it didn't, it didn't end up going well for me. So once I got sober, um, I realized it was very hard to do a lot of the things that had been asked of me before. I realized that it had been drowning really an in intuition that was already there. So cold messaging people, sending um, texts to people who I didn't really know, posting cringy things on Facebook, all of those things came, I kind of came back online and started to realize that I wasn't comfortable with a lot of those behaviors and maybe started to realize that alcohol was the reason, um, you know, those, that those interactions take place, that having the cocktails and conversation uh, was a way to get really people to lower their guard, not ask so many questions and make it easier to sign up or join. Truly, you were drinking and, and doing your, it made it easier for you to, to, because I, I think that that's a really interesting thing because I think for, for a lot of people who are outside of it, the cold calling aspect of it, which to be fair is like, there's an element of cold calling in a lot of jobs, right? Like we have to cold, I mean, I don't personally do it, but there's a lot of cold calling at our jobs. Um, and I think there are many jobs for which it's, you know, it's never the most comfortable process, but it doesn't have quite the level of perceived discomfort. I think that a lot of people from the outside would think, you know, seeing a lot of this outreach that has to be done in many cases to people you know personally. Um, so it's really interesting to think that a lot of it might be taking place when people are not totally sober. Right. And I think also what's built in is you're told from the beginning, hey, this is going to feel uncomfortable. You know, this, you're going to feel kind of gross sending this cold message. You're going to feel weird sending this script that we give you to send to people. So you're already preempted with this okay, this is going to feel weird. So when I feel cringy about it, I'm going to ignore that, or I'm going to, you know, have a drink, or I'm going to whatever to put that away, because I've already been told it's going to feel weird. So instead of listening to myself, and leaning into that and saying, why does this feel weird? Maybe I don't want to be doing this. I'm going to say, okay, this is part of my growth. This is part of how I become a big salesperson. This is part of the process of being successful. So it's already preempted with that knowing it's going to be uncomfortable. So if you're a person who, again, has a drink to like drown your intuition, to drown those uncomfortable feelings, then of course that's, that's just going to be a given. Well, and there's also an interesting parallel between, you know, we've talked a fair amount on the channel about, you know, wine mom culture and how, uh, toxically, um, these things can be marketed to women as, you know, essentially a, a kind of medicine as a kind of, and also as a stopgap solution for what might be very real systemic issues that are being faced. And in many ways, MLMs sort of position themselves similarly in terms of, you know, identifying an issue, offering no solutions to that issue, offering a pretty convenient way to uh, worsen the worsen the dynamics. But you know, and, and this is something that I've asked someone before, but I would be interested in in your take as well. Um, I've asked another uh, former MLM person, but 
Part of what seems so difficult about it is that when you're speaking to, like, let's say, a military spouse who has extremely limited career prospects and not only needs the money, but also needs the social connection, or at least the prospect of money, the prospect of social connection, when there are so few opportunities outside of things like MLMs, what is a compelling message that you feel like you can offer uh, to someone who's considering that? I would say, look at the data available. And there's so much cognitive dissonance there. And I think the, the promise of friendship, the promise of money is what people really glom onto. It's what I was attracted to, right? Look at this supportive group of women, look at these prizes and trips I could earn. But if you look at the financial disclosures given by the companies themselves and really analyze them, be critical about it, you can see that your chances of losing money are so much greater. I mean, buying a lottery ticket would be a better use of your money and ha would have a better rate of success than, than an MLM. And understanding that your friend who is trying to get you into this organization has an ulterior motive. As much as they love you or not, they would, they're recruiting you for a purpose and the purpose is their financial gain, not yours. Because once the company has your money, they don't ever need you to sell anything. They, they have your money. Whether you make another dollar or not does not matter to them because now they have your money, win or lose. So it's this pay to play system that rarely, rarely ever pans out. And I would also say if you have gotten roped in, you know, if you did join and you're like, whoops, um, keep, keep a very close eye on what you're spending, your profit loss statements. Look at the money you're putting in versus the money you're getting out. And then look at your time. How much are you, how much time are you really spending doing this and, and be realistic about it? Um, it is hard because like you said, a lot of these things that women are, are served up as solutions, you know, here, have a glass of wine here, have this pyramid scheme. It's because we have, you know, we're very disempowered. Like we don't have a lot of external sources of power and it looks hopeful. And that's another reason why, why we are also given these success stories that are the 0.003% success stories, because there are so few of them. And that's what the hope is what keeps people roped in the hope of earning this money, the hope of becoming this top, you know, seller in the organization. And it's just not feasible it, for most people. It really isn't. Yeah, I mean, MLMs in particular are such a strange beast because although there are some like when you're looking at the ways that late capitalism like exacerbates a lot of problems, like, you know, for example, uh, especially when it comes to the really untenable position that mothers in America are in, um, which I think cannot be understated and is something that you talk about quite a lot. Um, but there's kind of, I mean, you know, on the one hand, there are things that have always existed that are now being really exacerbated or kind of, you know, taking on a much more unhealthy role. Um, 
But then you look at something like an MLM, which I mean, as far as I can tell, is fairly recent in human history. Like this is not a structure that has existed for a really long time. So unlike a lot of other things that we can sort of look at and say like, well, this this probably isn't good, but it seems sort of endemic. MLMs, I, I think, are so surprising in their endurance to me because they do seem fairly new and fairly arbitrary. I'm interested, like, do you feel that they are sort of now going to always exist in some form, that they're sort of like now a just like baked in part of our society and of our economy? Or do you feel like this is something that we can outgrow? I think it's really tricky because MLMs are almost a $200 billion industry, billion with a B. Yikes. And essentially they're legal pyramid schemes and the government not only supports them, but they protect them. There are a lot of lobbyists and politicians that are tied up in MLMs and take money from them. Um, And then the Direct Selling Association, which it's this self-regulated body that it supposedly regulates direct selling, but it actually doesn't. It protects direct selling. Um, You've got the UN that even takes money from MLMs. So it's it's so um, difficult, I think, to separate that out. I, I think it would be very difficult for MLMs as a whole to just stop existing because they have so much government and political protection. Um, I do think though, on a smaller scale, that individual MLMs, you know, they are being exposed and they're being, um, uh, you know, shut down or they're made single level only, you know, Advocare was turned into a single level organization. Um, Obviously, LuLaRoe has been exposed, you know, there's a lot of companies individually that are being exposed. And I think what that does is then helps on the consumer level it helps consumers be more skeptical of the things they're buying into and the products they're purchasing. So I do think that they will become less popular. Do I think they'll fully ever go away? I I don't think so. That's depressing. I mean, you're probably right, but <laughs> it's so terrible. I mean, the fact that LuLaRoe still exists as an organization to me is just mind-blowing. Like every now and again, I'll go on their social media pages and I'm like, somebody is being paid to run these social media accounts? Like that is, ugh, it's it's not heartwarming, I'll say that. But, you know, if you, I mean, when I look at your work, I really do take in that sort of 360 theme of like, we have presented, we've put a lot of women in really untenable positions and then offered them unhealthy um, coping mechanisms or unhealthy methods of escape or what have you. Um, So what are some of the things that you kind of not just recommend, but sort of your philosophical approach to treating the cause of these things in women's lives and not necessarily the symptoms or not just sort of playing whack-a-mole with the different uh, coping mechanisms that a person might have. Right. So I think looking at the why behind anything, and I almost hate to phrase it that way because that's such a huge MLM thing, like find your why, find your why behind selling products and recruiting people. But it really is true. When you're looking for something, you're like, I really think this looks enticing and exciting and helpful to me. Why does this look helpful? Like, what are you really looking for? And if you want to join an MLM because you're looking for a community, there's a lot of other ways to do that. Even just online, you know, there's meetup groups, there's, um, you know, there's social media. There's a lot of different ways to find people online, maybe an affinity group like hiking or biking or whatever. Um, Look there, start there, 
start at a, a friendship-based or community-based organization that doesn't require a financial buy-in first, right? So look at what, you know, are you looking for more money? There's a lot of online options right now. You know, do you have skills that you put on Fiverr or Upwork? You know, can you uh, do medical transcription? There's, there's a lot of online opportunities. Can you do social media work? Can you, you know, whatever. Um, there's, there's a lot of avenues at home for making money, again, that don't require a financial buy-in. Um, which automatically, you know, you're starting negative to, to begin with when you buy into these MLM businesses or corporations. Um, you know, look at the reason that you are searching for something, the reason you're, again, like reaching for the drink or reaching for this pyramid scheme or whatever it is. And I think that's where you will find deeper answers. Are there going to be solutions for it? I don't know, but I know that MLMs are not the solution. They sure aren't, um, but they are. I mean, I mentioned crypto in the intro because I do think it's been very interesting seeing how a lot of these same dynamics are able to sort of assert themselves even without necessarily the same social aspects because obviously you know MLMs are quite gendered they're they really do prey on women um, and are sort of in many ways adapted to how women socialize and how they connect and how they interact but crypto is a really interesting example to me because on almost every level it sort of followed the same template, but it didn't have those same sort of inherent social connections to um, to fall back on necessarily. I'm, I'm interested if you have thoughts kind of looking at the rise and fall of crypto as it pertains to MLMs. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll say on the outset that I never understood crypto, still don't. But I think the reason I didn't look into it too much is because it seemed like a pyramid scheme. <laughs> It really did. I had, I'm so critical of, of things that look too good to be true, right? I think it's interesting. What I will say about it is when I, I've seen this, I've seen, you know, you just said it and I've seen other people say that crypto is, is like Tupperware for men or MLMs for men. And it's more of a comment is, isn't it interesting that the thing that pertains directly to money is considered the men's thing. Like, I don't think that's, I, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the fact that it's just financial only, there's no products, they're not like sugarcoating anything. This is all about making money is considered the more male dominated thing. I don't know. I guess that's what I have to say about it. Well, first of all, uh, you not understanding MLM, well, it's because there's nothing to understand. Either people don't understand it or the people who do just know that it's a it's a complete scam. But um, that, that sort of like outside perception that there's something to know that you might not be qualified to understand is a big part of the appeal. Um, but I actually, interestingly enough, like I'm like, I actually think the Tupperware girlies made it out well in this one because at least you have Tupperware you can use, you know, as opposed to just completely fraudulent uh, abstract concepts of money that have absolutely no real world utility. And thanks to our friends at Saks Off Fifth for sponsoring this episode of The Financial Confessions. Saks Off Fifth's incredible value and shopping experience makes modern luxury accessible to everyone. From investment pieces to vacation essentials, Saks Off Fifth is where fashion takes off. Shop now at SaksOffFifth.com or go to a Saks Off Fifth store near you for up to 70% off spring styles. 
I actually personally have shopped at Saks Off Fifth for a long time because as many of you know, I try to focus on cost per use when it comes to my wardrobe and basically everything I buy. But I have found over the years that investing in high quality pieces that last for a long time is a way better move than engaging in the race to the bottom to buy the cheapest piece possible. And given the fact that Saks Off Fifth has these higher end pieces at much better prices, it fits my financial goals as much as my sartorial ones. So whether you're looking for a few items to update your work wardrobe as the weather gets warmer, or you need an item for a specific occasion like a wedding guest dress, Saks Off Fifth has you covered. Shop now at SaksOffFifth.com or go to a Saks Off Fifth store near you for up to 70% off spring styles. So you've obviously, you're an example of a person who on so many different kind of levels of your life has made an enormous amount of changes, um, which seem, uh, from everything I can tell, quite sustainable and something you feel good about. Um, you know, whether it's leaving something like an MLM, you know, going through recovery, changing your habits, changing your social networks in order to um, to sort of reset all of those things. Do you feel like you're just really good at starting new habits or changing things, or do you feel like there are specific um, specific lessons that you would give to anyone who's looking to make really major changes like that? Gosh, I don't think I'm that good at starting new habits. I mean, you know, if you take recovery for example, I I tried a really long time to drink well <laughs> before I completely failed and had to stop drinking. Right. And I, again, in the MLM, I, there was so much cognitive dissonance. I so badly wanted to believe that what I was doing was good because I got involved for such a good reason. And it took a long time. There was a long period of knowing that it probably wasn't right, but I kept hanging on. So I think just ultimately what I'm better at now is trusting my intuition. Mm. And again, if something sounds too good to be true, asking myself why, um, and, and just being more skeptical of things, using more critical thinking, um, and, you know, consumer awareness. Um, I, I think all of that is important. Like when you're looking at advertisements, what am I being sold here? Uh, if you're given these, you know, little <clears throat> cliches, like mommy needs wine, you know, <clears throat> really questioning the things that we're told, especially as women, uh, if we need to co-opt all of this stuff. So, um, I wouldn't say I'm, you know, I'm better than anyone else at, at making new habits or adapting to change, but, I will say that I have become much better at trusting my intuition. Okay, so I'm child-free by choice, so I am not demographically positioned to know what's going on at any given time in this media sphere, but the mommy needs wine stuff, that has to be dying down by now. Like, is that still a thing? I mean, I constantly hope so and assume so. I feel like there's way more awareness about it now, especially coming out of COVID and seeing the huge majority of women who drank a lot more during the pandemic. And I think sidebar, just to say, people always ask, why do you pick on women? Why do you pick on moms? I don't, um, I am a woman, I am a mom. And so that's the demographic I know, those are the people I work with. But the bigger reason is that the demographic of people who are dying um, you know, from alcoholic liver disease and who are drinking exponentially more than any other group, um, is moms, you know, women of childbearing years, women with young children in the house. It, it, so that's why, that's where my concern is going to go, because that's the most vulnerable set of people right now. And women are more susceptible to alcohol than men. It 
It affects our bodies differently. There's so many different reasons. So I don't pick on moms. I don't pick on women. That's just where my focus is. So I think, you know, it's, it's looking at the informed consent piece and what we don't know. And we are becoming more aware of it now. But at the same time, I'll still see something on social media that I'm like, how do people still, still think this is funny? <laughs> so I think I'm in the sphere of, sphere of recovery and advocacy and education, and it's still deemed funny in, in, in some places. So I, I do think it's coming around, but it's still kind of a trope. It's still kind of a joke that, um, that people cling on to. I don't know. Well, I mean, I'm certainly no expert in the matter, but it seems to me at least somewhat correlated or corollary with the exponential rise in um, women, especially mothers or women of childbearing age um, who are on some sort of long-term psychoactive medication. Um, You know, there's a very fine line, I think, between, you know, Medication, I think, can be life-changing for people. I've taken medication at different times in my life for different things, um, and there shouldn't be a stigma attached with it. However, I do think sometimes we fail to pull out the lens a little bit wider and say like, okay, well, we don't want to stigmatize and say like antidepressants are bad because they're not, but shouldn't it be of some concern that, you know, in the past however many decades that we've seen such a meteoric rise in the use of these drugs or the the need for these drugs that doesn't it say at least something about the position that we're putting people in? And I do think that there is this just constant individualization of the solutions and of, you know, what the answer is and managing things yourself and, and you know, having everything under control that really I think fails to take into account that like there there has to be a reason that this is happening this way at this time. Oh, absolutely. And again, it goes back to that, the why of why am I reaching for this? Why am I needing this? And when you look at the pandemic, for example, uh, moms were home and they were already doing too much. So if they had their you know, prescription or their glass of wine or whatever to get them through. And then all of a sudden they're like, here, now teach your kids and work at home and do all the things and survive this pandemic. Congratulations. Good luck. Um, what are you going to do? Whatever ails you, whatever medication you use, whether it's, you know, prescribed from your doctor or whether it's, you know, wine that you get at Safeway, what, what are you going to do? You're going to use more of it because what other, what else is society giving us? Nothing. We don't have you know a lot of paid leave. We don't have a lot of subsidized childcare. We don't have a lot of help. Um, so of course, like I never fault any woman who then goes to those solutions or falls for a pyramid scheme. Because again, here's something hopeful. Maybe you could make it. Maybe this could help you. Of course, that's what you're going to go for. So you're right. It's it is systemic, and it's how do we fix that problem first before we can look at how we fix the solutions. It's like we're going at it backwards. Absolutely. Well, what we had a guest on here fairly recently, Eve Rodsky, who wrote a book called Fair Play. You might have read it. It sounds like you've seen it or it seems like you've seen it. Um, Fabulous woman. Um, You know, the, the anecdotes that she was sharing on, you know, that she shares in her book and that she was sharing on the show about, you know, she's this obviously brilliantly smart and talented at the time, you know, attorney, um, working attorney at least, um, 
as were most of the women in her social circle. Um, so not just full-time jobs, sort of like not the women that MLMs are going for, sort of the opposite in many ways. Like they're extremely gainfully employed and, you know, working long hours and all of that. Um, and their husbands also had full-time jobs, but it was pretty much systematically, not even pretty much, it was systematically the mother who was also shouldering just an enormous amount of the domestic responsibilities, the childcare responsibilities, the sort of mental load of managing everything. Um, you know, to what extent do you feel like the solutions for a lot of these things at the more root level exist within one's own home and the division of labor? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the mental load of motherhood right there is, I think, uh, you know, kudos to like families who have it figured out and have it 50-50, but I would say that's not the norm. And it's, you know, forget talking about single moms, like what, what solutions do you have? And, and really not, you have to hold the whole world on your shoulders. I think there's this very traditional, uh, you know, heteronormative man works out of the house, women's at home that, that still sticks. Like it's still, we still have that bias when we think of the home. And so if the mom is working outside of the house, those domestic duties, we have this bias that that still falls on her. So of course, then pandemic comes, kids are home, who's going to stay home with them? And, and I think, you know, that's one thing that's important to note too, is these MLMs do give this idea like, oh, well, you're, you're home anyway. So you might as well do this in your time off, or you have this job that's too much for you. On the other hand, like, again, you're full, fully employed. You want to be home with your kids more here, this could help you. So it's, it's kind of on both sides of the fence. Like this could help you leave your really demanding job. This could help you, this could give you a job when you're home and not making money. Um, it, it really will tug at any like heartstrings of, of any, again, the, the vulnerabilities that you have, because ultimately, no matter what choice you make, if you're home, or if you're working, you are tugged by that domestic responsibility that falls on all women. So again, it's like, there's no good solution other than, you know, affordable childcare and all these things that we don't get. Well, speaking of the spouse aspect of it, one thing that always kind of, that I was always curious about looking at um, women who were really sucked into MLMs and in many cases losing a lot of money, time, et cetera, um, was in many cases they had spouses, uh, you know, typically male spouses, but, you know, spouses of, of any gender. And, you know, so theoretically, someone who's not just home seeing all this happen, but also who is, um, you know, sort of jointly impacted financially by these things. Um, I'm interested kind of like, what are the dynamics around the spouses of people in MLMs? I don't know if you, uh, when you were in an MLM, had, you know, one particular day. I mean, I guess if anything, yours was probably better because you were making so much money. But in general, what's that like? It's really interesting because, you know, you're spot on about the success in MLM. I don't know that there are any, you know, many, if any, um, single moms who are, you know, at the top of their MLM company, if they didn't have a spouse somewhere in there at some point, maybe they're divorced now or whatever. But the fact that I had a spouse who already had an income was the reason I was able to be successful because we had that not only to fall back on, but 
you know, I was able to invest. I was able to spend money on babysitters to go to all these conventions and things. So I would not have been able to achieve that level of success had I not have had a spouse, a two income house. And I also would not have been able to leave. So that's the other tricky piece is that once you are, you know, successful or making money or whatever, you are really locked in. So I was able to leave again, because I had a spouse who was gainfully employed and had an income that could sustain us. One of the things that you will see across the board in multi-level marketing organizations is this drive to retire your husband, which is just the cringiest way to phrase it, but it is, it's global. You see it all the time. Oh, she retired her husband. He got to retire, which that's not what retirement is. Retirement is being able to not work anymore. Retiring your spouse means that they're now working with you in the MLM. So there's a lot of that. And what that then does is now you're screwed. If you, if you ever want to leave, now you're a hundred percent, you know, financially, you have those golden handcuffs. You cannot leave because everything now is reliant on the MLM as your income. And there's no, it's not a guaranteed income. There's no um, healthcare. There's no protection. There's no retirement. There's no pension. There's, there's nothing. So it's a really risky financial move, but that is seen as the ultimate pinnacle of success, like retiring your husband. And we were pressured many times to have my husband join the business and, you know, move away from his job. And thankfully my husband is a very smart financial person and would have never done that. Um, but again, it's it's really interesting how they really seek to isolate you financially so that you can't leave. That is so mind-blowing. I literally, when you were saying that, I was like, well, I mean, it's not the worst thing to want your spouse to not have to work anymore if they don't want to. You mean just also join the MLM? How, oh, that is so horrible. I feel so upset having heard that. Um, that's crazy. Well. I mean, you make several really good points there in terms of the duality of, you know, both, you know, obviously making a lot of money is in some ways the optimal outcome, but it also is the most restrictive one in the long term in terms of, you know, being able to do something else, which kind of taps into another aspect of this that we haven't discussed, which is the enormous pressure on people in MLMs, especially the successful people, to be aspirational, um, which I would imagine keeps you locked in a lot of spending patterns, consumer spending patterns that are really, really difficult to leave. Um, I believe you also mentioned that, you know, things like your body image and, you know, pressure on appearance and all of that took a, you know, an enormous hit from being in an MLM. Can you talk about that aspect of being good at the job? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different things this brings in. And so when I talk about the idea of a commercial cult, the MLM itself, it also encompasses all of these little like culty things, right? Like you, you have maybe a wellness MLM and so it's co-opting diet culture and, you know, thin bodies are the bodies we strive for and all of this, uh, clean, extreme eating, uh, type dieting and extreme exercise, right? Or you have, uh, you know, a, a skincare MLM that co-ops all of this maybe clean beauty or or whatever. So you have all of these things kind of tied in. You also have a lot of like church communities who have a really high percentage of MLM participation. So those are kind of also their own closed systems. Um, you have a lot of like um, political affiliations where you know you have maybe like 
the QAnon moms or like the MAGA hat wearing moms who are also in these MLMs. So that's part of why they are so all encompassing is that they also wear all these other little hats that, that go along with it. It's not like a, a job, a typical job where you leave at the end of the day and that's it. It really takes on like your entire personality. So, so you're co-opting all this stuff. So say you're in this wellness uh, organization, you have to then have your own before and afters, right? So what are they going to be? It's going to be, you know, before I, before and after I lost 10 pounds because of this groundbreaking game-changing exercise program or diet program by my stuff. So you have to look like a product of the products all of the time. Um, same thing with skincare, with, with anything, with any kind of wellness products, you have to look like you're using the products and you have to look like the products work, first of all. And the products, of course, are just a stepping stone to get people involved in the business, in the organization as, as a recruit, right? So once you are a recruit, once you're in and you're supposedly making money from the organization, you need to look like you're making money and you need to look like um, you know, hey, look, this is the car I just bought, or here's my paycheck with the number blurred out. That's a, another big one. Um, look how much I'm making. I, you know, oh, it's payday. I get to buy this. And um, here's my new Louis Vuitton bag. It is a lot of aspirational lifestyle things. Here's the trip I earned. But what you're not seeing is you know, the fact that that's added to your income at the end of the year, that you have to pay taxes on it, that you, it actually wasn't free. You had to pay a lot of money on it. But it's all this fake it till you make it. My products are changing my life and this business is changing my life all of the time. And it's really having to be on stage um, and, and sell yourself constantly. Do you feel now as how many years out of an MLM are you? Um, God, it feels like so many, but it's really not that many. I mean, I'm, I'm two years officially like out, out, but it was a few years up to that point that I was drifting out. So, yeah. Do you feel like your relationship with your appearance and presentation has changed a lot since leaving? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, I had, And I I say I had to have, I didn't have to have hair extensions, but everybody at the top did. And they all looked the same and they all had the same shoes and the same outfits. And so I felt very compelled to dress the part, right? To look the part. And so once that was gone, um, especially when COVID hit and it was like, everyone's on Zoom in their sweatpants, um, the need to show up and the need to look so congruent to everybody else really went away um, and was so freeing, was was very freeing. And I didn't realize how much, um, you know, diet culture and the idea of, uh, you know, thin bodies are the best kind of bodies and all of that stuff was really built in to how you have to look. Again, this idea of aspiration. Did you find that there was a grieving period in leaving, especially for the social aspect of it? So I think what really helped is that, again, I was, I had become very skeptical and I'd almost become, um, I don't know, every event I went to, I started feeling exploited and I started to feel like I was exploiting people. And so I backed off of those. I think my feeling towards the end was so negative that when COVID hit, 
I was pretty relieved to not have to go to any of these in-person things anymore, to not have to interact with a lot of these people anymore. And especially when I saw a lot of the behavior during COVID where a lot of people were co-opting some really um, conspiracy theory type beliefs um, just based on like what their upline said. And, you know, I saw a lot of the very blatant predatory behavior. Um, it, it really helped me distance myself from people. And I would say that thankfully the people I, you know, brought in who were friends before, you know, are still friends now. Um, that didn't change anything, but there were a lot of people for whom I thought I was friends with, but my not being in the organization anymore really was, you know, I think a threat to, to them or maybe um, challenged what they needed to believe to stay in. And, you know, there were a lot of people who stopped speaking to me once I submitted that termination form. That's awful for all parties. It makes me really sad, but as much for them as for you, I mean, that's just really, I mean, because it's probably likely that the people who were most, you know, um, who took it worst were the people who probably also themselves had negative thoughts about it. You know, it's, I think that there's this very, I mean, I, I think it's a fairly common phenomenon that like if things kind of hit close to the bone, if you already sort of know there's something wrong there, or there's something not right with it. So I do hope those people have gotten out of it since. Yeah, I mean, I do hope people come around. I think, I think it's really hard. And again, I I've been there, and so I know that if it were me, you know, and someone else had had done this, um, you know, ten years ago, I would have thought the same thing. I would have been like, oh, they're just a hater. They just had their own experience, and I wouldn't really look into what they were saying critically, because again, you're you're really told to avoid information outside of the commercial cults. You're really told to only read their press releases and their uh, scripts for what you should say. You're not supposed to go read anything outside of the organization. So I wouldn't have gone to seek that information myself. And everything is about squashing your own intuition and doing what you're told, um, you know, regardless of the outcome. I will also say, Anyone who has seen some of these documentaries and thinks that the conferences and the events and all of the stuff that the MLM puts on seem fun, because I do think that's a lot of the appeal uh, for a lot of people. I will only say that that is just very common in the corporate world generally. Like a huge amount of corporate organizations throw like big conferences and events where they get like, you know, celebrities and, and musicians and stuff. So you don't have to join an MLM in order to have those experiences. Right. And they are exhausting by nature. They are, they are made to be exhausting to keep you tired and keep you, you know, they're, they're sensational. And so it keeps the belief going, even if the belief is gone, they're, they're really like a necessary part of the MLM structure. And yeah, they aren't singular to MLMs. A lot of corporations use these to keep people's beliefs strong and to keep them roped in and just tired enough to not be able to say no. I I have to say as a as a dyed in the wool extrovert, I I do love a good conference, but yeah, they the ones on the MLM side seem like borderline, you know, I mean quasi religious experience like they're sure. Yeah, there's a lot of prayer and a lot of thanking God and and a lot of yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah. So not even quasi, openly religious. <laughs> yeah, overly religious, for sure. On that note, out of curiosity, do you think it's kind of a hostile environment for people who are not Christian? 
Oh, very, very. In fact, I had several Jewish friends who were, you know, ostracized from certain uh, events because they weren't Christian, who were not added to weird things like team pages on Facebook, or they were left off leaderboards. Um, And some who were even told that they needed to convert to Christianity because, you know, the rapture was coming or whatever. There's a lot, there's a lot of just grossness around religious. And in some ways, I think the religious manipulation is, is the worst part of MLMs um, because it's, it is there. It's infused in the MLM. It's infused in the people. And because everyone in an MLM is, uh, you know, everyone at the recruited level is just an independent contractor. They're just a person. um, That's kind of dangerous because (laughs) whatever beliefs they have, you know, really out there or not, uh, it's kind of taken as, uh, as like this weird blood oath that you need to have on your little teams. And it's, it's really odd how, how it all plays out. Can you say more about why you think the religious aspect is in some ways the most insidious or dangerous? Yeah, because I will say I'm thankfully the, you know, person I joined and the, the upline I had wasn't super, super duper religious, but we did still have like a prayer breakfast when we went to certain things. Um, there were prayers, there were, um, a lot of, uh, you know, like Facebook posts and thanking God and, um, you know, just, just uncomfortable. Like God doesn't care about your MLM really, you know, Jesus doesn't care if you sell skincare, Jesus does not care if you take supplements. That's, that's such a weird thing to co-opt, but I think it's really hard because religion is already it's it's its own like closed system and i think there's i could go on on a whole thing here but there's such a potential for abuse in uh religious organizations as it is that when you have both when you have someone who's in a church group and they join their church friends and their mlm it's just like double vulnerability, I think, because you're supposed to do like what your elders and your pastors tell you. And if they're also financially controlling you, and of course there's financial control that goes on in religion too. I just think it's, it's a very dangerous combination because there is, you know, religion at its worst manifestation can be very abusive. Yeah. And I mean, it's the same sort of toxic you know, mixture that it comes up in most, you know, expressions of capitalism, which is the prosperity gospel and this idea that, you know, your financial success is a reflection of your, you know, spiritual worthiness and of your moral character. And, you know, God wants you to be rich. And I mean, I suppose in a in a capitalist system that also sort of implies that God wants certain people to be poor as well. But um but yeah, there is this very um, sort of dogmatic approach to how we think about the, the the underlying assumption, which is that more money is always better, and it's better because it's moral. Right, and I think the the meritocracy aspect of MLMs that makes it even more dangerous because not only is it you know you do these things and you'll succeed and God will love you, but if you don't do these things, then it's your fault. 
So it's the blame aspect of it that, you know, if someone fails, which 99.7% of people do financially fail because they don't turn a profit, they're blamed for it. It's their fault. It's because they didn't follow the system. It's because they didn't do all the things they were supposed to do. And if you add that layer of religion into it, it's, oh, and you must not have pleased God as well. I mean, that's just so damaging. It's the worst. Well, um, I'm very, very grateful for you uh, sharing your story with us. And, you know, for those uh, in the audience who will, I, I would imagine many want to learn more when, uh, when and where is your book coming? Yes. So you can get my book. It's on pre-order right now. And anywhere you buy your books, whatever local bookstore you want to um, support or any big box store, they all have them. Uh, it's called Hey Hun, Sales, Sisterhood, Supremacy, and Other Lies Behind Multi-Level Marketing. It comes out May 30th. Um, and of course, I always have to say pre-orders are so, so helpful for the success of an author's book. So um, I would appreciate it. And just as a general rule, if you have authors you love, always pre-order their stuff because it means a lot. It sure does. We'll probably do an entire uh, episode breaking down the scam that is uh, these bestseller lists and how they work and all of that stuff, because there's a lot that goes into that as well that's worth unpacking. But for the time being, authors do have to play by that game. So pre-order is king. It gets rolled into first week sales. It's very important. Uh, thank you so much, Emily, for coming on the show. And thank you guys all at home for tuning in. And I will see you next week on an all new episode of The Financial Confessions. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.